Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Pushkin. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by Congressman Maxwell Frost. In what was a landslide election this past November, Frost was chosen to represent Florida's 10th Congressional District, a seat previously occupied by Val Demings. The win made Frost, at age 26, the first Gen Z member of Congress, a Congress that has an average age of 58 years old. But what Congressman Frost may lack in years he actually makes up for an experience. Growing up in Orlando, Frost began organizing on behalf of gun reform in the aftermath of Sandy Hook Elementary, where 20 children and six teachers were killed. Although he was only a sophomore in high school, he quickly joined forces with the Newtown Action Alliance, a grassroots program dedicated to reversing the gun violence epidemic in America. As the epidemic escalated in the years to follow, Frost worked for the ACLU, was the national organizing director of March for Our Lives, and then finally, a member of Bernie Sanders' advance team in his 2020 presidential bid. Frost brings all of these experiences to the 118th Congress, but he also brings the experience of his generation. Occupy, Trayvon Martin, Parkland, Pulse, a global pandemic, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, 
We come from a trauma-filled generation, Frost says, and despite that, we want to be part of the solution. But how he actually intends to do that in an increasingly fractured Congress, led by Speaker Kevin McCarthy, is something we get into in our conversation. We sat down just a day after Congressman Frost was in Parkland to honor the 17 lives lost at Stoneman Douglas High School. That shooting took place back in 2018. And in the intervening five years, we've yet to see real national gun reform come to pass. Even as we live in a country that, in 2023, has experienced more mass shootings than days in the year. That's like a sentence you write, and then you read it, and you wonder, how is that okay? How do we get to this point? And who is really willing to make the changes necessary? We hope it's Congressman Frost, since he comes from this generation, because this epidemic is so bad that between the time that the congressman and I spoke, just a matter of days, another shooting occurred. This one happened to be right in his backyard in Orlando, Florida, where a gunman murdered a woman, a TV journalist, and a nine-year-old girl. The day that something like this becomes normal is the day we forfeit any chance of change in the future. And I don't know if Congressman Frost will deliver the reform I know he'll be fighting for. But what I do know, at the very least, is that we have someone in Congress at the age of 26 that has lived experience with this epidemic that comes from a generation marked by these shootings. And so in our conversation, we talk about the fight he is fighting, how he got to this moment, and so much more. I hope you enjoy Do you prefer to be called Congressman Frost, Mr. Frost, Maxwell Alejandro Frost? What do we like? Um, I think Congressman Frost or Congressman is just fine or something like that. I can do Congressman Frost. I think that's going to sound cool, good. Cool, cool, cool. I was thinking, since you've been elected to Congress, I'm probably the first person to interview you that's around your age and also a renter. Possibly. I have done. So one of my first interviews I did since I was elected was actually an interview with like Nickelodeon where I got slimed and I got interviewed by like someone who's like, I think she's like 14 or 15, but she's not renting. Right. I mean, she could be actually. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. You know, the Nick stars have a different bag than other 15 year olds. So they often have a huge <laughs> bag. Actually, you know what? She's probably financially independent <laughs> yeah. more so than both of yeah, us. Yeah, she, she's definitely probably in a better situation than I am. So, <laughs> Well, Congressman Frost, it is a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I think, unfortunately, we have to start with the reality that I know we both wish wasn't so. Earlier this month marked five years since 14 students and three teachers were killed at Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. You recently attended the ceremony honoring the lives lost and affected by this horrific event, an event that since 2018 has become increasingly common. The ceremony itself 
had to acknowledge the recent shooting at Michigan State University that left three students dead and five wounded. That shooting, of course, came nine months after a gunman killed 19 students and two teachers at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. And in fact, since Parkland, there have been 11 shootings at schools where multiple victims have died in the United States, a country where gun violence is now the leading cause of death for kids and teens. And so to start with all of that context and and all of that baggage, after Parkland, when you were spearheading March for Our Lives in 2018, which was potentially the biggest youth-led protest since the Vietnam War. Is this the country you thought you were marching toward back then? No, right? I mean, I remember I I first got involved in politics really a decade ago after the Sandy Hook shooting happened. I was 15 years old. I got involved simply because I didn't want to get shot in school. And when I think back, I, you know, at 15, I definitely would have thought 10 years later, we would be in a lot different of a situation. But the reality is, and you just brought this up, Sam, it it has gotten worse. The amount of mass shootings we have have gotten worse. We've had more mass shootings this year than there have been days in the year. More mass shootings than days in the year so far. And so that just shows us that it's a policy failure. There's a lot of work that needs to be done. I mean, 10 years ago, if you asked me, where will we be in a decade? I probably would have said, you know, we would have had sweeping gun laws. We would have slashed gun deaths maybe in half, but we just haven't gotten there. And it just shows how much of a hold the NRA and corporate interests have in our government, you know, because the majority of Americans, Republicans and NRA members included are for common sense gun reform, but yet we don't have it. And that's because in Congress, bipartisanship takes a different meaning when it comes to gun reform. In Congress, bipartisanship means what the NRA is okay with. And that's just, that's not right. You recently said that we have an opportunity, even in a Republican Congress, to pass legislation that can help get money for community violence intervention programs, that help end gun violence before it even happens. Now, you're referencing a Republican Party that has mostly sidestepped the issue of gun violence. What makes you believe that meaningful reform can and will be passed? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. If we, When we look at the kind of the evolution of the Republican Party on this issue, I would say they used to sidestep it, right? Like they used to be like, we have the laws on the books, you can't legislate to this and that. And now what we're seeing, especially with a lot of these state legislatures across the country, is it's no longer like a neutral, everything's okay, thoughts and prayers. Now it's like thoughts and prayers and let's pass permanently carry where people can carry any gun, any place, anywhere. And so now they're like actively exacerbating the issue. They've gone from acting like it doesn't exist to now actively working to get more guns in our community. And so that's something I think it's important to keep in mind. Our opposition is well-funded and now they are going off the deep end. And when we look at what's been going on in terms of gun violence and we look at this debate, this is the slowing moving issue in U.S. politics, I believe. It's why in 10 years we've had, in 30 years, we've had one piece of federal legislation around ending gun violence. And it was that Safer Communities Act that was passed last year. And look, that was great. It's going to save lives. It's not everything we need, though. There's a lot more that needs to be done. And so we have to look at kind of where the party, where the Republican Party is going. And I think this year, we're not going to pass any meaningful gun legislation just because we don't have the numbers. But I do think we can pass 
you know, we can appropriate money to go to community violence intervention programs. This has nothing to do with gun regulation and everything to do with saving lives on the ground, funding community programs. They get kids off the streets. They work at, you know, gun buyback programs, all these different community-based solutions that help add an additional element to public safety. So that way we, the community's at the center of it. If you had the votes, which you said you don't, what would you do? If we had all the votes, first off, I would immediately pass universal background checks. I would immediately ensure that we have uh, waiting day periods, universal waiting day periods for any gun you buy. This is important. A lot of people don't realize this. Most gun violence, about 60% is suicide. And so when someone makes a decision, right, to take their own life with a gun or to take their own life with anything, every minute that goes by, between them making that decision and them getting the means to take their life, they're less likely significantly to take their life with the weapon. So when we have waiting day periods, it's going to save lives because it adds that time, whether it's 24 hours or three days, et cetera. We can cut gun violence almost in half with waiting day periods alone. So waiting day periods, banning assault weapons, banning high capacity magazines, et cetera. And, you know, I'm fine with having a permit system or uh, an appeal system where people can submit specific instances where they'd like to purchase an assault weapon or something like that. I can compromise on that. Okay, but like we're not even having a discussion in the first place. The second thing is healthcare and mental health. And this is something Republicans talk a lot about. But the problem is they want to just talk about mental health and throw everything out the door. This needs to be a comprehensive solution. Mental health is important. Not so fun fact. A lot of times Republicans will deem people with serious mental health issues as the perpetrators of gun violence. Statistics show that if you have a serious mental health condition, you're not more likely to shoot someone with a gun. You're more likely to get shot with a gun. And so mental health is still an important part of this conversation, of course, not the only part. We do need to address it, though. Then the last thing I'll say is we need to ensure that we are upping the standard of living in this country. When people have health care, a dignified wage, the ability to feed their families, they're less likely to use a gun to solve their problems. You know, funny enough, you've been in Congress for just about two months, but that speech sounded like you'd been there for 20 years. Well, you know, it's what happens when we, I feel like sometimes we view people in the positions of power as the only authorities on the issues. But the, the fact of the matter is there's so many people in, and gun violence happens to be like what I've worked on for a decade. It's what I've done most of my work on. But there's, you know, people in these advocacy groups, organizers who have solutions, who have ideas for bills. And we need our legislators to really co-govern with these folks. You know, that's what we're going to be doing, working with our community leaders to help figure out what bills and what things we need to co-sponsor and bring up and the way we talk about the issue as well. You know, since Columbine in 1999, there's been a lot of discussion, both from the left and the right, around banning assault weapons, universal background checks. But the Washington Post recently reported that a single handgun is the weapon of choice in nearly 80 percent of these school shootings not semi-automatic assault weapons. Moreover, when it comes to background checks, in 86% of the 181 shootings since Columbine, 86%, the children found the guns in the homes of their friends, relatives, or parents. They didn't go to a store to buy anything. They looked around at home or in a friend of a friend's home. And I wonder how you're squaring away those recently reported findings with the 
policies you want to try to implement. It's important. I mean, and this is why this this issue needs holistic solutions. And that's why safe, safe storage laws are a huge part of the legislation that needs to pass to ensure that we help end gun violence, both for kids who find guns and shoot themselves or one of their family members, et cetera, or people who end up finding guns that aren't supposed to. So the two laws that'll help a lot with that, an assault weapons ban in general, but uh, when we talk about handguns, number one, safe storage laws, 110% for both sellers of guns and also for people who own guns themselves, especially if they have children in the house. And so it's important that we think about these laws that will tackle everything. Again, banning assault weapons won't completely end gun violence alone. You know, mental health care work won't help end gun violence alone. We need all of this, right? It's an entire suite of legislation to help with this issue. I want to go back to where this fight for gun reform began for you. So I want to set the scene. You're adopted at birth and grow up in the suburbia that is Meadowwoods, Orlando. From an early age, you have this ear for music and begin playing. In fact, just behind you, as we're speaking, I see a Coltrane poster, a Tito Puente poster. Uh, clearly, music has this influence on you and your work. And come December 14th, 2012, you're a, a sophomore in high school, and a percussionist in a salsa band. And it's before a concert, and the beloved TGI Fridays deals abound that everything changes. What happens? So we're sitting there in the restaurant, you know, we're there being loud, like sophomore high school kids, and everyone just stopped talking. And it's because we were looking at the television screens and seeing that somebody walked into an elementary school in Newtown, Connecticut, and murdered 20 children and six teachers. And I remember that, you know, just reading it, seeing everything. I remember we looked at each other we were like, damn, like, what the hell? And then we just went back to our concert. We were playing. And I just remember sitting there at the drum set. We were playing a jazz band concert and just kind of looking around, looking over my shoulder at the exit and just being scared and like really thinking someone's going to walk in here and shoot everybody. I mean, and that's, you know, that's the type of anxieties that a lot of our students have right now. That's why I say Gen Z, we're a lot of things, but we're also the mass shooting generation where it's such a staple of our collective identity. You know, Gen Z spans the spectrum of ideology, but no matter what your politics are, all Gen Zers could agree in the fact that mass shootings are just such a huge part of our culture and some of the most significant moments in our collective life. When you think about Parkland, Pulse, different and just gun violence in general, Trayvon Martin, Breonna Taylor, or violence in general, George Floyd. It's wild to think that some of the points that connect us the most are actually just very traumatic points of death in this country. But after Sandy Hook, you convince your parents to put you on a plane to Washington, D.C. to attend this vigil on behalf of 26 Lives Lost. Yep. Can I ask you, why did you want to go to that? You know, sometimes in life something happens and you just feel this call to action and it's really incumbent upon us. Do you answer that call or do you not? You know, it's funny. I did this interview, I think it was with BuzzFeed, and the whole thing was about stan culture because people found all these old tweets of me just standing over like Ariana Grande and stuff like that. But they asked me a question that I never thought of. And they said, do you see a similarity between stan culture and politics? And at first I was like, eh. And then I thought about it. And my whole life growing up, like right behind me, one of the one of my most proudest things, I, I can't grab it right now, is I have a poster from the Disney Channel games where I went out and got everyone to sign it. And like the amount of perseverance and like obsession it took me to do that was a lot. So I fast forward to this moment where I'm seeing what happened in Sandy Hook and I literally got on my laptop and 
low-key like stalked everyone I saw on TV. Not stalked, but like just went online, looked them up. Like, who are they? Are they posting on Instagram? Is there any actions? And I found someone named Sarah Clements, who her mother was a teacher at Sandy Hook at the time. And thank God she's still with us. And um, I DM'd Sarah like on Facebook. And I was like, hey, I'm Maxwell Frost. I'm 15 years old from Florida. Is that what you sounded like? I think that's what I sounded like. I'm, yeah, yeah. I think I'm pretty on par. Uh, I want to come to the vigil. Let me know. I want to help out. Like all I knew is that I wanted to be there. I wanted to help. And she sent me this RSVP form that it's funny because this form was for the families and people from Sandy Hook going. And she was like, yeah, just fill this out. So I filled it out. Eventually I get accepted and I end up going, but it was just last year. I went to the 10 year anniversary and I heard the story of what happened behind the scenes. And apparently the board received this like confirmation from some 15 year old kid no one's ever heard of from florida and they had a whole debate and discussion on whether or not they should allow me to come because like they didn't know who i was so they ended up allowing me to come and thank god because it changed my life i, I honestly probably wouldn't be here if i didn't go to that vigil it changed my life forever well let's talk about how it did change your life because the night of the vigil you're sitting around the hotel pool and you see a 16 year old named matthew soto what do you see in him I remember a very specific night. We were staying in like some days in or holiday in or a hotel like that in Virginia. And I remember there was a hotel basement pool and just all the kids and teens were just kind of sitting around this pool, waiting our feet in the water, talking. And I just remember hearing Matthew Soto talk, you know, talk about his sister, Vicky Soto, who was a teacher at Sandy Hook. When she heard the gunshots, she hid the kids in the closet and she ended up getting shot and she was killed. And I just remember it was the first time in my life I've seen someone kind of pour out their heart like that. And seeing someone like Matthew so young, I think he was like 16, like seeing a 16 year old, but having the demeanor of like a 60 year old crying over his sister who was murdered changed my life. I went straight to my hotel room. I called my mom. She's a teacher. I was crying and I ended up dedicating the rest of my life to fighting to help end that pain. And, you know, then I find out about all the other screwed up issues in this country. And that's that was really the start for me. You rush back to your hotel room, sit there on one of those beds, probably not very comfortable. Yeah. You call your mom. What are you feeling? Yeah, I just remember feeling I was sitting with the call, right? Like that was the call to action. It was just that experience. And like, I was just sitting with it and I was like crying and I like didn't know how to feel. Cause like, let's be clear. Like I, I remember when I was adopted at birth, I was adopted by my mom's a teacher. My dad's a musician. We're never rich or anything, but we were just like, you know, middle-class. I never had to worry about my next meal. I never worried about gun violence in my neighborhood. I never worried about any of that. And I feel really blessed, but this was like the first time in my life that I was confronted with this trauma that was so out of the ordinary for me. And it just kind of, it, I had like this whiplash, you know, I just remember saying like, this is like, I need to do this. I need to like work on this. I need to organize and I ended up going back and organizing back at home, you know, with different organizations and then running for SGA president and doing protests at school. And then right out of high school, working on campaigns. The earliest indication of that commitment comes in May of 2013 when you announce your candidacy for student body president at your high school to convince your fellow students that, that you were the man for the job, you release a video that I believe you paid someone $200 to edit. <laughs> and I thought while we're here together that we take a look at that first campaign video. <laughs> I just remember I did pay someone, you know, I worked at Publix at the time as a bagger and I remember I, I gave up a paycheck or two for this video. All right, here we go. 
your voice. Your voice is one of the most powerful things in the world. If a voice can change a classroom, then it can change a school. And if it can change a school, it can change the nation. And if it can change the nation, then it can change the world. Your voice can change the world, but it all starts here. Our three main goals would be to clean the campus, support the power of your voice, and showcase the students' arts just as much as their academic achievements. I am supporting Maxwell Frost and Sean Fernandez for President and Vice President of Student Government because I believe that they truly have what it takes to make a positive change in school. I need, I need to put this on private, this video. <laughs> it's kind of a banger. You know, the funny thing is I paid all that money for that video and they were supposed to show it in the... So I went to like an arts high school and middle school and like every week on Wednesday, we'd do a recital where all the students would get in this theater and we'd have an hour of performing for each other and they were playing all the videos. And when it got to my video, like the power went out or something and it never got shown. So like I ended up getting a projector and playing it during lunchtime, like in the courtyard and there was like four people watching it. So it was really a waste of money. <laughs> but I guess now, you know, it, it's good entertainment. Now it's here on the Talk Easy podcast. There you go. So it was worth every penny. Those opening lines around changing the world, they do sound like some lines from an Obama speech. Were they taken from that? They are exactly lines from an Obama speech. Uh, it's from his first election. Like, yeah, it was like, you know, if a voice can change a classroom, it can change a gym. If it can change a gym, it can change a, change a city. If it can change a city, it can change a world. Your voice can change the world. So I literally just like took that <laughs> and put it in my commercial for student government president that no one saw. So there you go. There's a level of ambition <laughs> in those words and in that video yep. that I think is interesting. Did you see yourself as an ambitious, precocious teenager? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I used to get in trouble a lot in elementary school and middle school. When I started getting involved in politics, my energy started shifting. And so I got into less trouble. But I've always had a lot of energy. And I think like in elementary school, middle school was really around like making people laugh. Like I spent most of my sixth grade in detention. I wasn't like a bad kid. I wasn't like hitting people. I was just like talking in class, making jokes, doing pranks. So I've always been very, I guess, persistent and out there. It's just I had trouble kind of shifting my energy to certain things. And I think like the politics and music really helped me like focus in the energy in the right place. You mentioned Obama as an influence, but as a Afro-Cuban teenager, how much were you grappling with your own identity growing up with what you've called a lot of anti-blackness ingrained in me. By the time high school rolls around, are you starting to square away how you saw yourself in the world? I always talk about this, that my parents who adopted me, my mother's Cuban. My dad was born in Kansas and raised for a good part of his life in Bermuda. He's a pan player. I was grew up with a lot of culture around, and but was mainly just grew up Cuban. And I remember in elementary school, when people would say I was black, I would be really quick to be like, no, no, I'm brown. Like I was like ashamed, right? Or not ashamed, but just like I had that anti-blackness in me. And I think I got a lot of it from number one, just not being around a lot of black folks, not knowing the culture, going to Miami where there's a ton of anti-blackness within like the Cuban diaspora per se. And just like kind of not come to terms with the fact that I was black and knowing anything. And it's not the fault of my family or anything specifically. I'm not trying to blame anyone, but it's just like, I think it was the matter of the circumstances and nature of my environment. And then in high school is when I ended up coming to terms with my blackness. And I think a lot of it came from my black friends and like starting to understand the culture and getting into hip hop and 
etc. And learning more about what it meant to be Afro-Cuban and Afro-Latino and, and leaning into that. And really, everything changed for me kind of late. It was in high school. I feel like that's late for a lot of folks to come to terms with your identity. But it took me time to work through it. What did it mean to you to be Afro-Cuban? I feel like I'm still sorting that out. But, you know, I think for me, it's just exciting because I really get to be a part of multiple exciting and beautiful cultures. And I think it's really representative of where a lot of our country is going. We know that the amount of like mixed race people is continuing to grow and grow as, you know, immigration goes up and culture starts to intertwine. And I think it's a beautiful thing. Like tonight, I'm getting sworn in here in Central Florida and we have like a salsa band and we're going to have jazz and we're going to have calypso. And it's just, it's going to be a beautiful night that I think is representative of kind of all the cultures I've been immersed in, both because of my identity and who I am, but also just because of the city I've grown up in. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. 
You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventionalawards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventionalawards. I'll save you a seat. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. Before you get sworn in tonight, why don't we talk about how your campaign started? Because I think a lot of it is wrapped up in identity and your family history, both of which are driving forces in your political pursuits. In 2020, after two years leading March for Our Lives, you work as a member of the advance team for Bernie Sanders. As 2021 rolls around, friends begin encouraging you to run for office come 2022. You register for the ballot. Consider running while remaining fairly skeptical. In that skepticism, someone encourages you to look at your beginnings. And it's in part because of that piece of advice that you decide to seek out your biological mother, which until that point you hadn't previously done, right? Yeah. I think, you know, for me, I I think a lot about... Because when, when I first got asked to run, this is like January. I didn't announce till August. So it ended up being this period in which I'm thinking about, wow, I've never run for office before. I had worked campaigns, like I had been a field director for campaigns. And so what changed everything for me was number one, talking with people in the community and finding out, oh, wow, I could win this. But what changed everything to me, to be honest, was more outside of the practical winning, losing thing. And it was connecting with my biological mother, hearing her story and hearing the fact that she had me at one of the most vulnerable points in her life. And that was life-changing for me, hearing that from her. It was really in line with my politics. So you have a phone call with her. And I'm curious, before you make that phone call, you're 24 years old, you've never spoken to her before. How are you feeling in that moment? I mean, you must have felt nervous, right? I was nervous. I mean, so what had happened was I asked my parents for the story. My parents never hid it from me or anything. They offered to connect with my biological mom multiple times throughout my life, even when I was very young but I was never interested. And then when I turned 18, you're legally allowed to go and find out yourself. And I still wasn't really interested. Why not? I think a lot of it had to do with, number one, I was adopted at birth. And I think that's just fundamentally a different experience than um, going through like the foster care system or being adopted when you're like new your biological parents, because it creates, I guess, a sense of identity crisis or like, you know, et cetera. But for me, I've only known one set of parents, right? Like my parents. 
I always knew I was adopted, obviously, because my parents are of white skin <laughs> and I have black skin. But, you know, I never really cared to know. But what I will say is that this was the first time I was very curious because I was having kind of an identity. I don't want to say identity crisis, but I was just really looking at myself and I wanted to make sure that this is what I wanted to do. And part of what I wanted to know were what were my beginnings. And that's why I learned this story. So you call her on the phone, anxious, a little afraid. What were you hoping to get out of the call? I'm not sure I was expecting anything. I think like I just wanted to talk with her. I was very curious about the conditions of my birth. I was very curious about what was going on in her life. And so in talking with her, we had a good conversation around it. And like hanging up, I said, oh, I need to run for Congress. Like, I need to run. I need to do this. And a lot of that came from that conversation. But to be clear, it wasn't the thing that made me run. You know, it was like the final straw. What about her words and her story pushed you over the edge? Specifically, you know, I there's like a phrase that Dr. Cornell West says, and he says, we got to see the world through the eyes of the most vulnerable. I remember the first time watching one of his lectures and hearing that it stuck with me. And it's something I always repeated as an organizer. And just being on the phone with biological mom, I remember her telling me that she had me at one of the most vulnerable points in her life. And I had never spoken with her before. And it was so closely connected to this phrase that was kind of huge part of my theory of change as an organizer, that it was almost a spiritual thing, like touched my heart. And, uh, and that's really a huge reason why I decided to run. Well, in August of 2021, you announce. In September of 2021, just two months after having that call with your mother, you decide to actually put her story front and center of your first campaign ad for Congress. Why don't we take a look at that? Growing up, I knew I was lucky. I never wondered where my next meal was going to come from, and there was always music in the house. My biological mother put me up for adoption at the most vulnerable point in her life. And like millions of Americans, the system had demonized and forgotten about her. Politics started early for me. I've been involved since I was 15 years old. And I remember watching the Sandy Hook massacre on the news in stunned silence, knowing that my life had changed. My fight for justice never let up after that. So I got to work, building a future that doesn't yet exist, but someday can. We know in order to get the justice that we deserve, we have to love the oppressed more than we hate the oppressor. We need to see the world through the eyes of the most vulnerable people and demand the same from every single one of our leaders. We deserve to live our best lives. We deserve a Green New Deal. Yes. We deserve Medicare for all. We deserve it. Ending gun violence. We deserve it. Reimagining public safety. We deserve it. Good paying union jobs. No justice. No justice. No justice. Coming back, once you announced your candidacy, what followed was what you called the hardest year of your life. You're 24 years old running this grassroots campaign with the help of your friends and family, and then these hectic 60 to 80 hour work weeks, you even have to make some extra money by driving Uber at night. So tell me, when you're riding around town in your yellow Kia Soul, <laughs> would you give your stump speech to Uber passengers? So generally, no. 
But if someone asked what I did, I always had a piece of literature in in my glove compartment that I could hand them and talk on them. But I never really, because I think about myself, like, you know, I, number one, I only Ubered late at night. Like I was Ubering 10 p.m., 1 a.m., 2 a.m. Those could be voters. No, 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 no. Yeah, they could be voters. But I think about myself taking an Uber at 1 a.m., going from one bar to another. And I'm not sure if I want to talk about politics. So I was a really good Uber driver. You know what I mean? I had a sunroof in that car. That car is actually my mom's car. I don't really own a car, but she lent it to me. And so I had the sunroof open. I had a good playlist going on, like chill, good music. You know, I would have the air on, right? I had water bottles in the back. Like it was a good ride. So I didn't want to like cramp the style talking about politics, but if someone brought it up or wanted to talk with me, I would bring it up. You're pretty judicious about how frequently you pitch your campaign to uh, your Uber passengers. Yeah. But I'm wondering, how did you balance driving, campaigning, making this a candidacy that had a chance to be successful? First and foremost, my top priority was the campaign, no matter what. That's part of the reason I decided I picked Uber is like, because I used to work at Olive Garden. I did like a summer at Olive Garden. So I was a server. So I was like, I'll just go back to serving. Like I was good at it. It was fun. I felt like I was in Diner Dash. What happened was I got a few months in the campaign and I was like, oh, like things come up. 30 minutes before they happen. And like, what if I have a shift? So I was like, I'm going to need a job that I can just control my own hours. And that's where I, you know, was like, okay, Uber makes sense. And so when I had Uber, it would usually be late at night because we were campaigning all morning and all evening. And I would just take to the road. At the end of my Uber career, per se, it's when Uber really hiked up these quests. If you do 40 rides or 50 rides or 60 rides within a weekend, you'll get $400. And so I was like, I don't have to Uber all week. And then I just need to go hard on the weekend. And so I did that for a few weeks and it took a lot out of me because I would do the highest one. I would do like 60 rides in three days. And if you've never Ubered, like 60 rides is a lot in three days. Like you're doing nothing else. So I would Uber like probably 12 hours each night for Friday, Saturday, Sunday and hit those and just make like a good amount of money to live off of for the you know next couple of weeks. Through all of that, you managed to mount this campaign that is successful come November of last year. And one of the reasons I think you were successful is because of the platforms that you stood behind and on. You primarily focused uh, your message around ending gun violence, transforming our criminal justice system, expanding access to healthcare, and treating climate change as the crisis that it is. And evidently, those platforms are what delivered you your seat representing Florida's 10th congressional district. But these are positions many of your colleagues, including Representative Omar of Minnesota, Representative Ocasio-Cortez of New York, or Representative Bush of Missouri. These are positions they have previously campaigned on and fought for in the House. All smart, talented people that I'm sure you and I mutually respect. But now that you're in Congress fighting for gun reform or expanded health care or renewable energy, what makes you believe you can deliver what they haven't till this point. You know, I, Congress is is a representative body of 435 people, right? And so when we get in there, it's difficult for one person and almost nearly impossible for one person to do everything, right? It's a math problem. If you don't have the numbers, you can't pass the legislation. So we look to fight outside of the system and help change the math so we get better people elected. You know, like in 2018, when we had 
women of color and progressive women of color who were elected to Congress and everyone in the world was like, they're going to change everything, all the systems, everything. And then everything didn't change in two years and people were like, wow, they sold out. It's very unfair because it's just not how this system works. We need numbers in here to pass the legislation we need. If you don't have the numbers, you don't get the bills. It's honestly quite simple. So I don't see myself as like a savior. I don't see myself as completely changing the system alone. I see myself as a piece of a movement inside the halls of Congress, a movement of working class people being elected who are values based, who are going to focus on loving their people and you know legislation that's big, bold and transformational. So it's not Maxwell Frost that's going to make that happen. It's going to be the movement. It's going to be the people outside of the halls of Congress that come together around that. I, I'm honest about it because I don't want people to get the notion to think that, oh, we got Gen Z in Congress. It's all going to change this year. No, it's not. <laughs> and I don't say that to be pessimistic. I don't want people to be like, wow, all hope is lost. It's not. There's still great work we're going to do. And it doesn't mean we're not going to ha- make a change or make a difference or inspire people and get more people elected. You know, this is a long battle ahead of us. And so it's an honor to play a small part in this big puzzle. You know, in that first video we talked about from 2021, where you launched your campaign, you pitched yourself as an organizer, not a politician. Now, evidently, you are a politician. And I'm wondering how you're thinking about that transformation from organizer to politician. I don't see it as a transformation. You know, I hold both identities at the same time, you know, just like I'm black and Cuban. And if you think about what my job is, I think organizing has prepared me for it because I'm still organizing, right? What do you do in Congress? You write a bill. Then what do you do? Well, now you got to get most of the 435 people to say yes to it. So then what do you do? You go and you talk with them. You try to convince them around a common shared goal to do an action to ensure that we can reach that goal. That is what organizing is all about. Really, the crux of it is bringing people together around a common shared goal or value, whether that goal is a legislation or whatever, right? But I'm still organizing within the halls of Congress. Then I want to go back to that first question, which is, of course, Representative Omar or Ocasio-Cortez or Representative Bush, they also come in part from an organizing background, especially Cory Bush, they do the same thing you have just said, right? They believe in a bill, they write it, then they talk to people about it. And I guess I'm curious, is there something in your nature, something in your style of communication that makes you believe they'll hear what you say, where other people's messages have seemed to fallen on deaf ears? I don't think I'm inherently better, different, worse, or anything than any other members of Congress, right? I think like I bring my 100% self to the table. Do I talk about issues a little differently than other people and other progressives? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I mean, and that's in part because I'm from Florida. I'm from the South. I'm from a different area. I have different experiences and those experiences form the way I think about things. For me, this is about the battle of hearts and minds. And so I believe in really centering the humanity of the people I disagree with. And I think that allows me to be able to communicate with them and build relationships and hopefully, you know, work with them on on legislation. But here's the problem. Our timeline is in these two-year chunks because that's the elections in Congress. So we think if we don't get this in this two years, we have failed. And then if that is our mindset, then yes, we're setting ourselves up for failure. And this is something that conservatives and Republicans do a great job of. Their timeline is 20 years. Their timeline is 30 years. That's why we woke up last year one morning and saw that the right to bodily autonomy and Roe versus Wade was completely thrown out the window. That wasn't no overnight thing. That's a 30-year, 20-year plan that Republicans have been working on for a long time. Look at these state legislatures. Do people know Florida used to be controlled by Democrats? 
Democrats. I can't even imagine a time where that happened. Like we can't set ourselves up for failure by setting timelines that are unachievable because it does a few things. Number one, it plays into the voter apathy because if you're thinking, I vote, this will happen tomorrow or in the next two years. And if it doesn't happen, at some point, you're going to wake up one morning and say, well, F this, I'm not going to vote anymore. I get it. You can curse here. Fuck this. But but like, you know, we, we have to. And, and part of this, man, is the fact that people, politicians have fed into this false timeline. They've said for generations, vote for me, this will happen. Vote for me. They promise all this stuff. And it's just not the way the system works. You know what I mean? It's just about knowing the landscape and having a timeline that makes sense. And when you're honest with your voters about that, guess what? When what happens happens, they're less likely to say, you know, screw this, I'm never going to vote again. They see themselves as part of a longer struggle. And that's what I'm trying to instill in like my constituents. And like when I'm in a room, I'm trying to like get people's buy-in on this generational struggle. It's going to take time. It's We're going to wrestle with it. It's going to be hard. We're going to take a step forward. We're going to take three steps back sometimes. And if you look at the history of movements, that is how this works. And it doesn't mean we won't have the bold transformational change we need. One day we will have that governing majority, but we don't have it right now. On a personal level, as you move through the halls of Congress and begin your first term, I can't help but shake one of the reasons you were elected in the first place. And one of those reasons comes from a quote from your friend Naya Lowell. She said, no disrespect to any of the other members of Congress, but they're a little far removed generationally and tax bracket wise. Now we have someone who is like us, knows exactly what we're going through in power. But you know, that tax bracket she's alluding to will eventually change when that first paycheck clears this month. And of course, there is an inherent power in being a member of Congress, power that we've seen in our lifetimes time and time again be misused and unchecked. And so I have to ask you, how do you remain through these shifts in power and tax brackets? How do you remain the person Naya is describing? How do you remain the man your district elected in the first place? Yeah, this is a great question. I'll tell you, when I first went to D.C. for my orientation week, I remember getting back and stepping into my house, you know, got off the plane, got an Uber, went back home. And I remember stepping into my house and being like, whoa, I forgot like what my house looked like. Because it, I was just so immersed in like the culture up there and the swearing in and my future colleagues and this and that and the capital and the blah and the do that I forgot about like my home. And I remember that like that night I was like, I can't let this happen again. And so it's incumbent upon us as leaders to take the proper necessary steps to keep ourselves in check. And I think you do that in a few ways. It's in the staff you hire. It's in the touch points you provide for your community. It's about the way that you involve movement folks and stakeholders in the work that you do. And if it's involved every step of the way, you're less likely to be, you know, that far removed from from life and what you do. So I still, you know, going out, hanging out with my friends, going out and, and being a part of the vibrant nightlife and culture and art that Central Florida has to offer, which is really what's grounded me to this community since the day that I got a drum set in the second grade, I'm going to continue to do that no matter what. Number one, for my personal sanity, but also too, because it keeps you like close to your people, close to your culture. And that's really important to me. I'm I'm always here in the community. We're always in events. For instance, my swearing in tonight, it's not in some hotel ballroom. We're doing this thing at a community center 
in a, one of our zip codes that's struggling the most and we're doing it in the gym and everyone's invited and we canvassed that neighborhood. We put flyers around, we texted to open event and guess what? We're going to feed everyone there too. So people don't have to skip out on a meal, especially if folks are looking for food, they can come by and get fed. So like, it's like stuff like that, that, you know, it's the way that you operate your office and we're not perfect. If I didn't set up these points of accountability for myself, I could get removed. I could be changed, right? Like I'm not perfect. No one is. So the point here isn't looking for a imperfect person. It's looking for the person who realizes their imperfections and they're able to compensate for it through the systems they set up in their office, the resources we're given and the way that they conduct themselves as a member of Congress, but also just as a leader in general. What do you see as uh, your imperfections? Number one, I have a bad memory. Like I forget things pretty often. I mean, I'm blessed now to have like a full staff of people who are constantly reminding me about things. Another thing that it could be seen, it's a pro and a negative is that like, I'm like the hair-brained, like big ideas guy. And like, I'm always thinking about these big, big things. And a lot of times I need people to kind of pull me down to earth and be like, hey, yeah, but what about these other more bite-sized things that can make an impact that are really important? And a lot of times those things don't excite me, to be honest, and I have to get excited about it. And so sometimes it's at my fault and sometimes it's good. I mean, like the big idea was running for Congress and that was crazy and then ended up working out. And I want to continue to do things like that. But a lot of times there are you know, like that more bite-sized actions that are still really important and, and and like essential to the process. Well, can we go to a moment that may have brought you down to earth within these first two months? You show up to work in DC, going into one of the buildings, you have to flash your, your badge that says you're- pin, Our pin. Your pin that, that says you're a member yeah. of Congress. What happens? So I was walking into a building and actually you don't even flash your pin. They just kind of see it on your lapel. It's kind of crazy. Like this little pin gets you everywhere. And uh, and I was walking. This was during the orient or was it during orientation? Oh, maybe it was during orientation. So this is before I got the pin. So yeah, you're right. This is when I have my member elect card and I kind of flash it, but they're far away. And they're like, oh, sorry, staff is through this other line. And I'm like, oh, I'm a member elect. And this guy runs over one of the Capitol police and he goes, what? Let me see. And he goes, what? You're young. He's like, holy America. And he calls over his friends and they're like, he's black too. And they start jumping in the air. We're all jumping together. And it was just like a cute moment. And I think about that a lot. I get stopped all the time, but I don't really get mad about it or anything. I, the fact of the matter is I don't look like a member of Congress and that's not their fault. You know, hopefully in 10 years, it's people will have different ways of thinking about things. But yeah, like moments like that definitely humble me, you know, going down to the cafeteria and waiting in a long ass line. And like, you know, <laughs> like, you know, if you want to get humbled, there's plenty of ways to be humbled in DC. But you know, it's crazy. Life has really changed drastically over the past three years. I mean, just a couple of days ago, I was in New York and did the Daily Show. And I heard you play, you play basketball with the host. <laughs> that is true. Who's better? You know, you're going to have to ask I, I don't know if I Damn. can say that. Right. I can say that. You but I, can say it? Right. I'm a little younger. Okay. I have youth on my side, although she's very youthful and spry. I heard spry is a word that people only use to describe old people. So you might want to change the word. Um, you know, <laughs> thank God for editing on this show, but I'm going to keep it go. in. There you go. I'm going to keep yeah, it Yeah, yeah, you're going to keep it in? Okay, good, good. There you go. There you go. So your your life has changed and the security guards, they were in shock. Yeah, but they were excited. You know, they were happy about it. You know, I guess in that change, I know we're talking about the security guard moment and this function you have tonight and, and doing the daily show and all, all of this that's happening at once. And I guess my last question to you, do you think your experience as an organizer 
was in many ways prescriptive in that it taught you that progress is very often a function of time. That that timeline you were talking about, that it requires you to buy into it. Yeah. And if you are maybe perhaps uniquely suited both as an organizer and, let's be honest, as a 26-year-old, to stick with this job, to ride this long arc and timeline. Yeah, I think it has. It's from being an organizer and just seeing how long things take and how frustrating things can be. But also, I'll always be a student of like the history of movements. And I I look back a lot just to kind of inform, number one, the timeline I'm giving myself over a project or over a struggle, but also like, you know, give me inspiration and ideas for the work we need to do. And I always encourage organizers and activists, protesters, like, please look into the history because you're going to learn a lot of things that are going to give, like, fortify you for the fight ahead. And part of it is how long this work can take and how these are generational struggles and things don't really happen overnight. But the problem is a lot of times that point that I just said is weaponized to push down the bold transformational ideas that people have. But it's setting us up for the day we have a governing majority to pass legislation that's really going to change people's lives. The last thing I'll say is this. A lot of times people think of these bold transformational ideas as like radical. It's not incremental. It's too much. But if you look at these bills, they're all written in a way where it's done incrementally. Like, let's say we pass Medicare for all today. It doesn't mean we're going to have Medicare for all the next day. In fact, Medicare for all bill is lowering the age of eligibility for like a decade. So what it does is it doesn't change everything immediately. It just prescribes the incremental steps we're going to take for the next 10 years towards our North Star. And I think that's a great way of thinking about these big, bold legislations, because a lot of times it scares people. But it's not about a drastic change in society tomorrow. It's about this is what we want in 10 years. And here's what we're prescribing, the thing we're going to do every year till we get there. Well, then let's do this. If we are to talk again in, in two to three years, I'd like to think of the show as a kind of time capsule. Let's put on the record. What do you hope gets passed and done in the next two to three years? I'm going to go with three years because the hope is that in 2024, we get a governing majority back. And I think we have the opportunity to have a real majority where we can pass the bills that are important. Again, it's and notice, I didn't say a democratic majority. I said a governing majority because we had a democratic majority last time and great bills were passed that are going to change, that ch- have changed things. But like we could have, you know, universal to your college, uh, childcare, et cetera. But like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema got in the way of that voting rights, gun violence prevention legislation. So it's important to realize that it's not just about a democratic majority. It's about a democratic majority that can actually govern. I hope it's in 2024. It might not be, but hopefully it's in 2024 where we can get back and we can pass things like, you know, the Freedom to Vote Act and all this different legislation. But if I were to pick one, are you asking me what I think is going to happen or what I want to happen? What you think and then what you want. I mean, what I would want is a single payer healthcare system like Medicare for all where everybody has healthcare. I've been thinking a lot about this lately. I, I really do think that our healthcare industry is just, it's one of our greatest sins in this country, profiting off the sickness of our fellow people. And I think my grandma passed away in October last year and is learning about the scam of Medicare Advantage and just all these things that she's on that led to her death happening sooner. I've been getting a lot of stories in from people. I just, I really do think it's one of our greatest three sins that we have right now is healthcare. So that is what I would want in three years. I'm not sure we'll have a governing majority for that though. I mean, I do think we'll have this in the decade, 
what I think will happen is I think we could be in a situation where we have a governing majority to pass some of this bold voting rights legislation that we need. So the Freedom to Vote Act, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, I think that we can do a carve out for the filibuster, if not just completely get rid of it. I think we can probably pass some meaningful gun legislation if we have a governing majority for that. Um, I think we can help uh, change our tax system to make sure that the wealthiest folks are actually paying their fair share. I think we can get to a place where a lot of those things can pass. And that will be under President Biden? Yeah, uh, or a Democrat, yeah, depending on what he decides to do. I mean, it was his agenda. Maybe by then you and I will be homeowners. Is that possible? Will we still be renting? I will probably still be renting. Oh, and like earlier when he said, my tax bracket isn't going to change. Well, I, well, actually, my tax bracket does change as soon as I get my first paycheck. But I'm not going to have like money like that for a while because I got a lot of debt. <laughs> so <laughs> it's going in and out for a few months. <laughs> well, thankfully, debt, a little bit like the progress we've been talking about, can be solved in time. Yeah. And it's a good thing as a 26-year-old, you have plenty of it. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Congressman Frost, it has been... A pleasure and a privilege to do this, and I look forward to talking with you in 2024, 2025, something like that. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you so much for having me on. Of course. Until next time. our show. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to give us five stars on Spotify, Apple, wherever you do your listening. I want to give a special thanks this week to Samantha Ramirez and of course, our guest, Congressman Maxwell Frost. To learn more about his work, be sure to visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation, I'd recommend our episodes with Representatives Corey Bush and Ilhan Omar, Dr. Cornell West, Gloria Steinem, Stacey Abrams, Beto O'Rourke, Jake Tapper, and Anita Hill. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. As always, this show would not be possible without our incredible team. Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Caitlin Dryden and mixed by Andrew Vastola. Our assistant editors are Clarice Guevara and Lindsay Ellis. Music by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Trisha Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, Ethan Seneca, and Layla Register. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, and Paulina Suarez. I'd also like to thank our team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Eric Sandler, Nicole Morano, Morgan Ratner, Jordan McMillan, Isabella Navarez, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fricoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next Sunday with Natasha Leone. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues 
with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information.